Well, I wanted to start just by asking, do you ever get a little uh, discouraged in, uh, in your witnessing? Maybe you uh, have some friend or family member that you've kind of been witnessing to for years, maybe, maybe five years, maybe ten years. Maybe you can think of people that you've been trying to share Jesus with, with your life and your words for 20 years, and uh, hasn't seemed to go that well. It's easy to get discouraged. They just don't seem maybe to have any interest, or maybe they seem to have a, some preset kind of, kind of bias against anything that you try to say about Jesus. Maybe it seems, or they seem to kind of get harder and harder to your words. And you just can't figure out how to break through. Your words seem to kind of go nowhere and kind of feels pointless. Well, if this has been your experience or something like it, I want you to pay attention to today's passage because I think that it's pretty encouraging to the, the weary witnesser. It's pretty encouraging to, to stick at it to trust God and to keep speaking, to keep sharing. So let's just jump in at at verse 22 and see how this works out. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, Tell us plainly. It's an interesting statement by the the Jews. They seem to be saying that they are unsure, they don't know if Jesus is the Messiah. And this is because he just hasn't said it plainly enough. Now I think uh, Jesus could easily argue this. In this book he's made some pretty clear statements as to his divinity. He's even said, before Abraham was, I am. He's taking the very nature, uh, taking on that very name of God. He said, I am the bread of life in chapter 6. No one has seen the Father except he who has come from him, referring to himself. He's been pretty clear in a lot of ways. But in one sense, they're right. Jesus hasn't, in a very public way, announced his messiahship. He hasn't set up a booth in Jerusalem, you know, with banners and said, here I am. You know, to kind of let everybody know. Most likely, this is because he knows what a stir this would cause and the violent response that might come. And he has some things that he wants to do and a message he wants to proclaim before they put him on the cross. This is why he often tells people off the back of one of his wonderful miracles, hey, don't, don't tell anybody right now. Because he wants to kind of keep the peace. And secondly, he knows that they have a complete misunderstanding of what messiahship means. The notion of a messiah that would be a suffering servant and, and a kingdom that's not immediately political and, and military is, is not what they have in mind at all. So to employ this title would probably bring a lot of confusion. But what I want us to notice 
is the implication behind their question, how long will you keep us in suspense? See, the implication is that it is his fault that they don't know. He is keeping them in a state of unsureness, not knowing. Because he just won't speak plainly. Their lack of belief is because of Jesus' lack of clarity. That's what they're saying. In fact, the King James translates their question, How long dost thou make us doubt? It's your fault, Jesus. Our unbelief is your fault. You're just not clear enough. Now, many times in my witnessing, I have experienced kind of similar Similar things. People excusing their unbelief on the basis of clarity. You know, there, there just isn't enough evidence, Carrie. There's just lots of different interpretations. It all depends on your perspective, you know. Interpretations are, are culturally bound. And the Bible, it was just written so long ago, and there's, there's really no definitive proof. So... Things just aren't clear. You can't really know. What do you want from me? So they're off the hook, right? Well, Jesus isn't really having any of this. Look at how he answers in verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Jesus says, well, you know, I have told you. And he has in many different ways. And they've even understood it. That's why they've tried to kill him a couple times. Because he said it and they knew it. But if that isn't enough, Jesus says, look at my works. They bear witness. They say it loud and clear. You see, talk can be cheap can be full of lies and misrepresentations, but actions always tend to clarify. One little saying I've heard from Jay Choi that he likes, he's like, he says, if you want to want know what somebody's really about, turn down the volume and just watch their life. Just turn down the volume so you don't hear what they say and just watch their life. It's very clarifying. Jesus says, look at the action. If you want to know the truth about someone, watch what they do. He actually bookends this section with this idea. Look at verse 37. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. If you really want to know and understand that Jesus is indeed God's Messiah, consider his actions, the clarity of his works. This is point one of the sermon. Clear works. You see, the thing about Jesus is that unlike any other person, especially any other kind of Messiah figure in history, his actions were 100% consistent and coherent with his claims and character. Thus they make clear and compelling evidence as to his divinity, his messiahship, at many levels. 
Consider just the level of power, the power that his actions demonstrate. Uh, just at, the level, at this level uh, of this raw power, it, it shows the validity of his claims. This is a man who over the past three years of his ministry has commanded the seas and the wind and they have obeyed him. He's commanded the cells of people's bodies, like when he healed Mary's fever and, 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 and the women with the internal bleeding. He's commanded at the cellular level, blood work, body chemistry stuff, and, and has obeyed him. This is a man who provided 5,000 people with bread and fish in the middle of the desert out of nothing, ex nihilo calling it into existence by his will, creator God stuff. This is a man who heals lifelong paralysis in an instant by his word. This is a man who's raised a dead girl to life, saying, Talitha Kume, little girl, get up. This is a man who controls the spiritual realms, casting out demons, even legions of them, cower before him, begging not to be destroyed. My friends, these are divine works. There is no doubt. These are what you put on your resume for the God position, right? <laughs> but Jesus' works don't merely confirm his identity as, as powerful displays. It's not just, look how powerful I am, I must be God. They also demonstrate who he is as, as pictures. They show the nature of his messiahship. They are kind of many living parables, stories about him. And according to verse 38, they bring knowledge and understanding of who he is. Take, for example, his first miracle in this book, The Wedding of Cana. Jesus taking the, the jars that were used for ceremonial purification and filling them to the brim with new wine. Powerful miracle. But the text says it's a sign. That is, it's pointing forward to something. It's showing us something. It wasn't just, wow, he changed water to wine. He's powerful. Jesus was demonstrating the cleansing work that he came to do at the cross. He's showing that he came to fill up the old purification system, to fulfill it. To the, to the full with his own blood and usher in the new age of messianic wine and joy. Think, in the he, think of the healing at the pool of Bethesda. A man crippled for 38 years, helpless to do anything for himself. He couldn't even get himself into the healing waters. A condition that's, that's linked to the, the sin that's in his life. And Jesus says to him, get up. Rise to full restoration, and he does. Hmm. What does that say? Consider the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus feeding God's people in the desert with miraculous bread from heaven, just like his father in the Old Testament. Hmm. Consider Jesus' healing of, of the blind man that we just looked at in, in chapter 9 where the man's eyes end up covered with mud and contamination, so he's left in the, in the dark. 
But then Jesus tells them to go wash in the pool of Siloam, which they were told means sent. And Jesus has been called the sent one 31 times in this book. Wash in the sent one. And he's washed and he's brought from the darkness. Hmm. You see, if we will take the time to examine the works of Jesus, not only will we see his his power as God, but we'll see his nature as Savior and Restorer and Provider. We will see him with clarity who he is. He's showing it over and over again in his miraculous works. And there's one last thing that, that shows the clarity of his works, and that is... Fulfillment. Not only are his works clear evidence as to his divinity in their power and in their picturing of who he is, but also in their fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus' miraculous works of healing the blind, of making the lame walk, of bringing the new wine, and even of dying on the cross for our sins and rising are all prophesied and predicted in the Old Testament. In books like Isaiah, texts written hundreds of years earlier, texts well known by this Jewish crowd before him, texts we have right here before us today. You know, the Septuagint, a Greek translation of the Old Testament that came about when Alexander the Great conquered Jerusalem 200 years before Christ, contains all these prophecies. You can't say they were written in later. You can check it out yourself. That's pretty clear evidence as to the validity of his claims all by itself. That alone is compelling testimony, and it's clear. Jesus says, if you don't believe me, if you think I'm not making it plain and clear, look at my works. They are clear in demonstrating my power. They are clear in showing my nature and character. They are clear fulfillments of prophecy. It couldn't be any clearer. My friends, this is encouraging. If you are a witness to Christ, if you are pointing people to the gospel, to the works of Jesus, to the cross, the onus is not on you to make it clear. Jesus' works make it clear. The reason a person doesn't see and believe is not for lack of clarity. It's something else entirely. Look at verse 26. See what it says. But you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The reason they don't believe is that they are not his sheep, they don't hear his voice. They don't follow him because they haven't been given to him by the Father to be part of his flock. You see, throughout this gospel, John has made it pretty clear that because of man's sinfulness and rebellious heart, 
He has strayed from God and can't and won't turn back. He's like a self-imposed blind man, a man with his eyes shut, intentionally closing his eyes, standing before the clear evidence and saying, I don't see it. I don't see it at all. It's not clear. He, need God, he needs God, that's all of us, to soften our hearts and open our eyes to see and to guide him into the fold. So you see how these verses here operate about not being snatched from God's hand? We, we like to use them as verses for security. Hey, w- w- once you're in, in the fold, you can't be snatched from God's hand. But he's actually using them here as a warning of insecurity to these Jewish listeners. Jesus is saying to these guys, it doesn't matter how religious you are. It doesn't matter how well you know the Old Testament. If you don't have a relationship with him, if you don't hear his voice and follow, then you don't know the Father and you have no eternal security because he and the Father are one. In short, if you don't have any clarity about Jesus in light of all his clear work, then you should have no security about your eternity, no assurance of eternal life. It's only because of your hard heart that you don't see. You have no excuse. You see, for some people, their claim of of confusion of unclearness gives them some solace, I think. It places the blame on, the, on an unclear God, so they, so they feel kind of excused. I know somebody like this, close to me. Just not clear, you can't know, he says. But you, you shouldn't feel any solace in that. It's not an excuse. It, it's, it should be a warning. Because their lack of clarity is is self-imposed. I was thinking of an illustration of this, and I was thinking it's kind of like getting pulled over by a police officer for speeding. And he he says, didn't you see the signs? It's clear, 65 miles. It's every couple hundred yards. We've got it posted right there. And you say, you know, I was going way too fast. It was blurry. (laughs) And, And you know, when you squint like this, I was squinting. It it looks like 165. He can't... Look, look. He knows. No, no, no. It's clear. It's on you. The works are clear. They have no excuse. And the fact that they don't see with clarity who Jesus is only condemns them. Because he and the Father are one. Now, the Jews don't really like this conclusion. So they respond in verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Notice the word again. (laughs) They picked up stones to stone him. I want you to feel that moment. They're so angry, this mob, that they've now got not little stones. These are big rocks. These are skull crushers. This is how they would kill people. This is the situation. It's tense. It's a life or death moment. 
The next words out of Jesus' mouth determine whether those stones come flying in and crush him. What would you say if you were Jesus in that moment? I know I'd be pretty careful with my words. I'd probably be like, is that a unicorn? And then I would run. But but Jesus comes, you know, he he comes back. He's not nervous. Uh, And he, he poses a question. Verse 32, Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? It's a good question. And I love their answer, verse 33. The Jews answered him, It's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. It's interesting, they they kind of acknowledge his works here. In fact, the NIV puts it, it's not for any of those things that we're going to stone you. They they acknowledge he's doing incredible works. They always have, by the way. They've never denied his, his works. They've tried to attribute them to Satan because they don't know how to explain them. They acknowledge his works. So they, you know, they say, no, no, we're not gonna... We're not going to kill you for those. We're not going to kill you for healing the paralytic, for curing those lepers. That was amazing. For making that, that crazy guy sane. What a miracle. We're not going to kill you for that. For that little girl that was sick, that you, we're not going to kill you for that. We're not trying to kill you for doing all that God stuff just for claiming to be God. Hmm. And note that not only are they acknowledging his works as legitimate and real, but they acknowledge their goodness. Jesus, in verse 33, refers to his works as good works. And and the Jews repeat this phrase. The Greek is erga kala. It's actually very strong. It it has like the idea of meaning, uh, uh, the meaning of noble and beautiful, great I think the NIV translated great miracles. You see, not only do Jesus' works bear clear witness to his divinity in power and in picture and in prophecy, but in their goodness. His works are clear works and they are good works. This is important. You could point to a lot of things about someone's actions that are clear, but that wouldn't mean that they were good. But Jesus' actions are always good and beautiful. This is important because there were many in those days, many kind of false leaders, even people uh, uh, claiming messiahship, claiming to be savior prophets and promising life to their followers. But they weren't good. Look, look. remember back in verse 8 of this text when we looked at the first half? Here, let's read it. Go back to verse 8. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to him. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. You see, there, there were many that came before him, 
kind of religious posers, false shepherds. They were not clearly demonstrating divinity with their actions, but ultimately they were revealed as, as thieves and robbers, bringing nothing but destruction. Their works were bad. They amassed followers and started revolts, promising life and blessing, but only brought ruin and hopelessness and destruction. And just as such false shepherds came before Jesus, they came after. They have come again many times. We have such gurus today. They send out messages throughout the internet encouraging their followers with promises of eternal life and all kinds of blessings in the afterlife. And then we have planes fly into buildings and car bombs wreak havoc on innocent people. Their works are bad. They kill and destroy. Yes, we have such gurus today. They come on TV promising their followers better lives and healing completely, completely for free if they will just send in their love offering now. Their works are bad, and they are thieves. But with Jesus, there's no such accusation to make. They have the chance right here. This is where they could pipe up and say, good works? What about all the times you you used your powers to, to bilk money from the poor? Or what about the times you squashed that guy who was challenging you? Or what about that whole harem thing you've got going on? Yeah, we know about that. It's against the law. The problem is there's no such stones to throw. It's all good. Jesus' works are good and beautiful. So Jesus is making them realize that they're not going to stone him for doing all this good God stuff, but for claiming to be God. It's got to get you to look at your feet a little, right? What are we doing? This is encouraging if you are a witness of Jesus. This is the Savior you proclaim. He is good. His works are good. They bear the marks of divine selflessness not known in human history, not known in human hearts, not known in mine. And all this selfless goodness comes to its focus in his final work at the cross. There you have it, the the good one, dying for the bad. Complete self-sacrifice. And with his, his consequent resurrection, it's a work that keeps testifying today in forgiven, renewed, hopeful lives. You see, Jesus' works are clear. And Jesus' works are good. And on top of that, Jesus is at work. He is working. You see, one thing that is obvious throughout this text and really throughout this whole book is that Jesus is in complete control, doing his salvation work in his way, by his timing, and nothing is going to stop it. And this is nowhere more apparent than in the second part of Jesus' answer to these men who stand there with stones in hand. There they are, this angry mob armed with rocks, ready to beat him down. 
you would think that they would be in control in this moment. But they're not, are they? Not even close. There's not a chance in the world that one of those stones is going to injure Jesus. And he doesn't have to put up some invisible shield to make it happen. He just speaks. Having given them pause with his first question, he now responds to their accusation of blasphemy, that is, calling himself God. Look at verse 34. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? They're referring to God speaking there. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, that's us, or people, and scriptures cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? Just Jesus, at a moment of imminent painful execution doesn't go blank he's not nervous no he answers brilliantly like like some courtroom drama at the last minute he pulls out this obscure precedent from the law and stops them in in their tracks he references psalm 82 6 where god calls his people or at least the leaders of his people god's Not in the divine sense, but in the small g sense. Sons of the Most High who represent him uh, with his judgments and, and laws, called to maintain his justice. In that sense, they are gods. So Jesus is simply saying, hey, God the Father used this term God of mere men. So how is it that you're going to stone me for using it of myself because you consider me a mere man? How could that be blasphemy? God must have been blaspheming. Don't misunderstand. He isn't lifting all men up to divine status, and he isn't lowering himself to some small, you know, G God, some generic God. In fact, he points out that he is uniquely consecrated, uniquely sent, unlike other men. Jesus is simply saying, you can't stone me For using this term for myself, it's right here in your book. They're about to contradict their own law. It's a moment of brilliant recall of the one obscure text that applied to the situation. You might call it kind of divine. See, Jesus is in complete control. The timeline of his salvation work is in his hands And it is not yet his time to die. So they can't stone him. In fact, they can't even arrest him. Look at verse 39. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. You see this phrase a lot. He just somehow slips away. And my friends, it's the same way with his salvation work today in people's lives and in this world. It's his work, he is in control. Things will happen in his way and in his time. This is encouraging. As I think of that friend that seems so close to the gospel, so unwilling to even consider Jesus, that situation where it just feels like my words go nowhere, 
and I may as well give up. Jesus is working. And I, and I think our text ends with a little demonstration of this. Look at verse 40 with me. After Jesus has slipped away, it says in verse 40, he went away again across the Jordan to the place where John, the Bap- where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. Remember John the Baptist? He's the guy who introduced Jesus to the world. There had been no greater evangelist at this point. He gave his whole life proclaiming Christ. He spent 30 years in the desert preparing, then came out in the spirit of Elijah in that weird outfit, and he began proclaiming Christ, pointing people to Jesus, the Messiah, God's Savior. And then what happened? He was put in jail. He got really discouraged. Jesus sent him a word that said, "Don't don't be offended by me. And then he had his head cut off. But let's read on. And many came to him. This is to Jesus. And they said, John did no signs, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. This is what happened. He didn't even get to see what happened with Jesus in his life. And it seemed pretty discouraging to him, I'm sure. But God used his words. And many came to believe. We need to be encouraged. You see, the clarity and goodness of Jesus' work will have its effect in his time. In his way. And some will come to say, remember the words of, uh, remember the words, remember remember that stuff Carrie said? Remember that stuff Mike said? Remember that stuff Kristen said about Jesus? It's all true. They will hear his voice. And no one will be able to snatch them from his hand. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your word that shows us these real situations of people just like us, people just like we see in our world today. Father, we thank you that you have made it clear that your works show who you are, that we may know Father, we ask you to open blind eyes. We offer you to soften hearts and call people to your fold. To use our mere words of your proclaiming your gospel. That many may be saved. Amen.